welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. To accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. Well, again, my name's Vaughn, and I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. I'm from uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada. My sobriety date is May 17th of 1990. I guess the format for this is uh, um, we're going to talk somewhere around 15 minutes each, perhaps. I think we're here for a full, uh, what is it, hour and 15 minutes, and we'll just open it up after that. The mic, uh, it is being taped, so if uh, you want to, uh, I guess we prefer to have you talk into the mic if you're comfortable doing that, so that... Those who aren't here will have the benefit of getting all the information when they listen to those tapes. I know how frustrating it is when there's those big gaps when I get them back home. So, It's interesting. I, I was asked to do this yesterday, and I, I, in reading this here, I know it referred to uh, Chapter 4 in the Big Book, and um, I'm not going to be referring to the Chapter 4 in the Big Book myself. Um, I'm going to stick with uh, the Step 2 uh, in our essay book, which I'll read again just for my own benefit. Step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I always do something I always think so humble when somebody comes up to me in one of these conferences and says, gee, would you like to lead a meeting? And I go, sure. And they go, which one? And I go, well, you know, whatever you choose, trusting that God will put me in the right one. And then they pick one and I go, I knew I should have picked something else. This one for me is, uh, you know, all the steps are God's steps, but this one for me is a big God step, and uh, I guess I'm a little overwhelmed to, you know, sit here and try and talk to people about a God experience that really is, uh, you know, to put it into to words for you people, I, that's difficult for me to do. Um, I was mentioning to Bill, I've been fairly emotional at this conference, fairly overwhelmed, frankly. I pull myself together occasionally, um, and I'm overwhelmed just by the sense of um, uh, coming to believe that I am truly being restored to sanity uh, through the things that God is doing in my life today. And uh, maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that personal part later. Um, for now, I'd just like to stick to some of the, the parts in the book that, I, uh, that stood out for me. We all know that, that part about we came, we came to, we came to believe. The most important part of that, and it is the most important part of this program for me and my relationship with my God, is we. We. I need you people to get sober, to stay sober, uh, not just sexually but emotionally, and to deal with life on life's terms. You people are indispensable to my recovery. I can't say enough about that. And when I read through here, the things that jumped out at me this morning were things that talked about the importance of the fellowship and the community in this program, as it has certainly been to me and continues to be after ten and a half years of sobriety. We came to, we awoke to the reality of our situation, came out of emotional and spiritual shock, and came to the reality of a power at work in the lives of others who were sober. I needed to see other people who were sober and getting some sanity back in their lives. That's been the encouragement to me in this program. Maybe there's some loners out here. If there is, God bless you. God knew I couldn't do this as a loner. I needed people in my face, people to hug me when I needed a hug, people to love me when I felt too shameful to share what I'd done and where I'd been and to walk with me as I went through the fears of new challenges in life. And that was God showing up for me. And there's another one here. The spirit of the meeting 
often seems to be greater than the sum of its members. That again for me, Bill and I talked a bit about this earlier, is I can't make one person my God. I knew I became very dependent on my sponsor when I first came into the program, and I don't regret that. But I knew that uh, I'd sort of put him in a lofty place. And uh, that was a challenge for me because he uh, lost his sobriety after about eight years and left the program. And uh, it was very, very difficult for me. But as usual, in hindsight, I look back, God was gracious. And two years prior to that had uh, led me into, uh, I was in another program uh, for the the, uh, the the co-people in the Al-Anon, to be exact. And I'd been led to take on a sponsor. Boy, did I need that sponsor when it came to my SA sponsor not meeting my expectations. And uh, I really thank God that he was there to support me because I really, really needed that. There's another part in here. But just as an unsound mind was the inevitable byproduct of our attitudes and wrongs, its healing will be the byproduct of working the steps. There is great promise here. Restoration to sanity becomes a very real hope because we see it happening around us. Sanity is contagious. Sobriety is contagious. I need to be with people who have a desire for sobriety. I have been in meetings where, uh, particularly early when we got in our fellowship, there wasn't a lot of sobriety. And it was confusing for me. Uh, I was uh, trying to get in touch with all the brokenness of my past that I'd stuffed with all this lust. And uh, there was all this confusion, and I need some clarity, and I needed some sober minds and sober people around me. And thank God that there were people who were committed to staying in the trenches um, for the last 10 years in our area and didn't graduate or move somewhere else because I really needed them. Another part here, we discovered the hard way that we had to leave our knowledge and pride outside the door when we entered. We could only join with our fellow members and be a part of when we identified on the basis of our current addiction, powerlessness and distress. We identify with each other at the point of our weaknesses. Our wrongfulness and our wrongs are what bring us together and to God. And that has been a radical for me when I came here to find out that it was in my weakness is when I could feel your love and the love of God the most. I didn't have to get anything together. I didn't have to stay sober 10 years before you'd love me. You loved me when I showed up. And strangely, it seemed as though I felt your love even that much more when I shared the most broken part of my life and the greatest weaknesses. So for me, it's been extremely important to have ongoing fellowship Showing up at meetings, obviously, there's something about eyeball to eyeball or sitting down with a sponsee or a sponsor eyeball to eyeball. That's where God shows up for me, you know, God in the flesh. And, of course, working the phone. I mean, I have I still do about three calls a day minimum. And, you know, we're not talking lust all the time. Early on, it was a lot more lust. Now it's a lot of the other stuff I'm dealing with. But I had to keep those channels open and, you know, my nature, and I see it in other people, is that isolatory, you know, start to hit some shame, hit some pain, act out, whatever it may be, uh, fade out for a while, disappear. All of a sudden, that sense of God's presence as it manifests itself in our relationships dries up. The phone won't ring. It's amazing. I've got guys like that. I say, just call me every day. and They hit a bump, and boy, it's hard for them to uh, maintain that commitment. Yet, this is the lifeblood for me of my relationship with God. There was uh, another part I was reading in here. uh, It's about uh, in step 10, and I'm the key. And this really hit home for me as I look back now, because a lot of coming more and more to believe what God is doing in my life is reflecting, you know, doing step work, uh, doing a fear list, and particularly doing the gratitude list after the fear list. That's a real bonus to me. That way I just don't beat myself up over all the fears. I need that gratitude list. But the way he said it here, this is when um, the writer had gone fishing with another member, again having fellowship, trying to deal with his relationship with his wife. And he said, I saw that if God had waited for me to shape up before he began working for my recovery and healing, I'd still be lost or dead. When I was still defective was when he was doing the most to call me back. 
I see this now looking back on the whole thing. He was patiently leading me out years before I even I had even the slightest self-awareness and honesty. At my lowest, he was leading me with his most magnificent selfless love for me in spite of my wrong because I was defective and powerless. That is just profound stuff for me. That a God could actually love me and did love me, does love me, will love me, through all that stuff I did for that long period of time. Uh, and I just needed you people to bring that message to me. That's why I needed to show up to meetings. I needed to show up at conferences and retreats to expand that sense of love. It's amazing. I can feel God's love one day and the next I can't. And I came to realize too, it, you know, it isn't about a feeling. I just needed to trust that God was there. And that faithfulness of God again, was manifested as I saw people faithful to the program showing up and saying, I'm prepared to walk with you through what you need to walk through to get sober and sane. It's been a, uh, it's been a real good path for me. I, uh, I'm in a good place. What's your time there? The reason I'm very grateful right now is... Um, yeah, yeah, I'm single in recovery. Divorce brought me into recovery. That was one of the many things, but that was a big one. And I'm working on a relationship right now. And uh, I guess I'm coming to believe uh, in this God even that much more as I see the grace he's given me to be able to show up for this relationship in a much different way than I've ever known in my life. To have an excitement about the prospect of holding this woman's hand and I've known her for 10 years, and we only decided last weekend to deepen this relationship after much thought, much prayer, much talking to both of my sponsors and another member 10 minutes before I had a fairly serious talk with her. And uh, I'm just overwhelmed that the same person that did the things that I did for such a long period of time that I felt so ashamed of and I felt so low, that that same person that God is providing such grace in my life today. I am truly just overwhelmed. I felt so unworthy, so useless acting out. Um, I'm sure everybody knows that routine. And uh, to realize that uh, there's actually a, a God that cares about me, that is actually prepared to give me something in my life. And to put a person in my life who loves me, uh, I'm still overwhelmed with it. So I continue to come to believe. It is not a, well, this is step two. I came to believe. Great. It's done. We did it together, Bill and I. I wish it was that easy. There was days I thought God left me, and truly it was just the grace of people in the program that just stuck by my side, worked their program, and through that were saying to me, God's still here. He never left. What's that lining? He's brought us this far. He's not going to let us down now. And so I'm, uh, I'm feeling particularly grateful. I, uh, as I say, it's a tough topic. It's a personal topic for me. Uh, you know, I, I, how does a person come to believe each person's experience is different? And I see lots of people struggle with the God relationship. And, uh, God willing, if I have the ability that others have had around me to just be present and love and hopefully be a, an expression of God's love by continuing to provide service in this program, the 12th step, uh, maybe I can be a part of helping others to come to believe. Um, so thank you for listening. Thank you for your continued support because I continue to need it after 10 years and six months. And uh, I expressed that strongly to this young lady as we talked about where we're going. And it was very, very important for me to... Um, convey to her how much you people mean to me. That I'm not a, what a, uh, uh, was a sexaholic. I am a sexaholic. And I will be tomorrow. And uh, it was really important for me to convey that to her, that I will continue to go to these meetings. And but for the grace of these meetings, God working through them and you people, I will not be able to show up in that relationship for her. And she knows that. Trust me, the old me would not want to tell a woman any of this. 
So it's a real change for me. It's a scary change. I'm excited as can be, scared to death. And uh, what can I say except uh, I'm extremely grateful. So thank you. My name is Bill, and I'm a sexaholic. And um, when I first came, I've been in SA for five years, and I've been sober for over five years. Um, and I kind of, many, many years ago, I knew that I knew there was something wrong. I knew I was a sexaholic. I knew there just wasn't something right. Um, and I ended up getting here. What got me here is my my wife became pregnant with my first son, and as soon as that happened, something inside me. Something inside me became very, very disturbed. You know, I needed to, I knew there was something wrong and it kind of pushed me into, to getting help. And the first way I did that was getting to therapy for about three years. And I avoided this problem in therapy, pretending I wasn't a sexaholic. And the therapist every year or so would ask me, would read me the 20 questions. And the first two times I, I for whatever I wasn't, didn't think that it, they applied. And then the last time, they did definitely recognize that, yeah, there's something wrong. And I called the sexaholic on the phone, and when I made that phone call, I talked to him for only minutes, just a couple minutes. And I got off the phone, I felt this sense of peace that I'd never felt in my life before. It was just for about 15 minutes, I felt this calm, and I went back to the therapist, and I said, I said, I do not know what happened, but I felt serenity, this, this weird feeling for just a short while. I called him again to find out where the meeting was and again experienced that same feeling. And I went to the meeting and uh, when I went to the meeting, I was totally overwhelmed. I mean, it just scared the, scared the crap out of me and listened to all these guys talking about their problems. And, um, and at first I didn't admit I was a sexaholic. I went to, I went to, I would go, I went to about probably six to eight meetings before I recognized I was a sexaholic and, um, and there was different guys, and there was one guy there who had who had some sobriety, and something inside of me asked him to be my sponsor. And uh, now, many years later, I realized it, it was God at work. At the time, I didn't know, you know. But when I went up to me, I asked him if, he'd be, if he would be my sponsor, and he asked me a couple really important questions. He said, "Are you ready to get sober? And are you willing to work the steps? And if you're willing to do those, if you're willing to do those things, I will work with you." And for me, that the firmness of his first comments really helped me, you know, because before that I was really waffling. I was coming to meetings, but I was on this fence, you know. I didn't know if I wanted to be there. I wasn't sure, et cetera. But, um, so that's kind of what, what got me started. And um, I worked the first step. And, and then when it came to steps two and three, he asked me, specifically two, he asked me just to read all the, all the writing on step two. So we agnostics, the white book and the 12 and 12. And, and when we sat down to two step two, you know, he just basically asked me, do you believe in a power greater yourself can restore you to sanity? And I had been raised a Catholic. I went to eight years of grammar Catholic school and four years of high school. So I knew the whole thing about God and had studied it. Um, so I answered yes to the question, but I really, I didn't understand it at all. And I didn't feel anything. Um, I didn't have a flash of this, of God or this big insight. And his point to me was, his point was, just work the step and go on to the next step. And so I ended up working the third step with him. And then I went and worked the fourth step and wrote my inventory and gave it to him. And then the sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth. And somewhere between five and nine, I started to feel God's presence. Or I started to have what the book talks about, those spiritual experiences. Um I started to feel differently, and um, um, but if I had gotten, st- I have lots of sponsees who who get stuck on this step two, and they start thinking, well, what does it mean? And they start thinking about this God, and they ask me all these questions about things, about you know, well, if He's there, why can't this happen? And I don't have any answers for that. For me, it was just a matter of being willing to believe, and then going on working the other steps. And there was something about working those other steps that introduced me to God and that brought him into my life. And I wanted to share a couple of examples of why, what I believe, how God's affected my life. And um, 
um, and that reliance upon God. I chose a, a career of management when I was acting out, and the reason being is because it was the only way I could handle the shame of what I was doing. If I managed people and tried to control everything, it somehow made me feel a little bit less shameful. And so I did that pretty much all my life, trying to um, basically manage people and, and control, etc. Um, well, about five years ago, my, my oldest son was four years old, and I think I had about a year's worth of sobriety, and he got into to preschool, and he was very, very shy. I mean, painfully shy, and um, wouldn't even say a single word. And we put him in this, this preschool. It was a Christian preschool. Um, but he got in, and the teacher was really, um, really, she couldn't handle it, and she kept coming to my wife and I saying, you know, there's something wrong with your son, and he, he won't speak, and... Um, and a couple times he, he pooped in his pants, and I didn't know what to do. You know, I was really scared. I, I talked to my sponsor. I talked to all these other people in the program. Nobody really could tell me what to do. I talked to a therapist. Um, but what I was doing at that time is I was almost taking the side of this teacher. And to my wife, I was saying things like, well, you know, he needs to be speaking, and, you know, there maybe there is something wrong, and, and this and that. And in a sense, I was abandoning him to this teacher. And my wife kept saying, no, 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 no. There's something wrong with the teacher. She's the one who has a problem with this situation. It'll work its way out. And, you know, I didn't know what to do. And I just kept praying about the situation, praying about the situation. I talked with my therapist about it. And, um, you know, she pointed that same thing out to me, that in a sense, I had abandoned him to this, to this teacher and what she thought. And, um, so he got, we took him, my wife and I, we took him out of school and put him to another school where he eventually started flourishing and that he became comfortable and he started speaking. And when he got into kindergarten, he pulled the same thing. He went the whole year of kindergarten without speaking a word, basically. And the teacher was in an, was just so uptight by this, she didn't know what to do. And so we'd go to conferences and she'd, you know, be, not know how to handle the situation. And, um, and at that point, she wanted to take him out of the school, or she wanted to hold him back, et cetera. And something started to change in me, and I said, no, you know, he's extremely intelligent. We're not, we're not going to do that. He's going to go on to his next grade, and, you know, things will work out. And, um, and I just started to believe that, you know, this is, this is up to, this is God, God's, this is God, God can handle this. You know, I can't, there's nothing I can do. I can't self-will him to talk. I can't force him to talk. I've got to put this in God's hand and see what happens. And so we, we supported him in the next year. We put him in another class. And what happened the next year, you got a teacher who was just free love, basically. I mean, everything went in that class. And all of a sudden, he started to flourish. And he just came out of his shell. And now it's been three years since that time. And he's extremely intelligent, et cetera. And the whole point of this thing is, is that what was going on with me is I was afraid. I was shameful. I was embarrassed. Those were what was going on with me. You know, it had nothing to do with my son. It was that I was afraid. And I wanted to will him to be, behave correctly so that I would feel better, you know. And that was the, my problem. It wasn't his problem. But see, once I let him go and, and surrendered it to God, well, God made it happen the way it was supposed to happen, you know. And he developed and he came out of his shell. But if I had continued to force him, what would have happened if I just continued to put pressure on him? You know, you need to speak in class. Boom, boom, boom. What would have happened? You know, I don't know what would have happened. But I'm grateful for whatever that... I was able to just say, God, you know, take this. And then uh, two years ago, my young, or a year ago, my youngest son had <laughs> gone through the same thing. He's painfully shy. Just, you know, people, he won't speak. And he picked up this habit where he would, he was biting on his shirt in a compulsive manner. Like he couldn't stop and just suck on his shirt. And his whole shirt would get wet all the way up to here. Well, how do you think I felt? I was embarrassed. I was sh- ashamed. I was afraid, you know. We'd go out in public and you have a shirt like this. And that's what was wrong with me. And, you know, what I did, I just kept praying to God, you know, God, you deal with this. I can't deal with it. And I would talk to my son about it. And, um, you know, and I would say to him, you know, you know, God can help you with that, you know. And, um, and sure enough, he, 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 he got out of it. You know, he got removed that, that urge to bite on his shirt and to chew his shirt. 
But watching it reminded of me. It's the same compulsion I had to, to masturbate, to look at pornography, to eat, overeat, to all those things. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop doing those things. And the only way I could stop is if I surrendered to God. You know, and, and thankfully God has removed the need to, to act out, but He's also removed a lot of the lust and the need to lust. And, um, um, but for me, you know, it's, it's been a, when I first worked these steps and tried to get connected to God, it was a trial, it was a basis tri- trial and error and continue to try to surrender to God. Because all these years I didn't have God, well, my life wasn't working properly. So why don't I at least try this and see what happens? And for me, I know that there's a God. Because if I've seen, I've seen all these things, just these two instances with my son, I know that there's a God. And there's so many other things that um, have happened in my life. And, um, you know, basic things to when I was a... When I was acting out, I couldn't do a lot of functions. I couldn't sit down and read a novel because my mind was buzzing so much with lustful thoughts and obsessions that I couldn't sit still to read. Um, I couldn't do work around the house. I couldn't, if the sink was leaking, you know, I couldn't, didn't have the right frame of mind just to fix the sink, you know, because I was so worried and full of anxiety and obsessions. Well, now, if I surrender and ask God, I can do a lot of things I couldn't do before. Um, but for me, the best part about this this step was that when my sponsor asked me to work this step, the th- biggest thing he did for me was tell me not to get too bogged down in it right now. Just, can you answer that question? Can you answer yes to that question? And I said yes. And Well, let's go on to the third step. And at the end of the third step, it talks about after I've turned my will on my life over to the care of God, it says, and now I have to take action. And now I have to go into work in an inventory. You know, and I'm grateful that he did that because, you know, I could have gotten stuck in step two and started thinking, well, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. And I probably could have done that for years, wondering about it. But by moving on to step four, when I found out what my character defects were, and then told them to my sponsor, and then went to step six and asked God to remove them. Um, just that action, for whatever reason, that action just brought me into contact with God. And, um, so I, you know, that's, that's been my experience. And, um, you know, I'm very, very grateful for the program. When I was acting out, I was married and, um, and I had two boys and they were very young and I always had this urge in me to leave. I had an urge to leave the family, just to to get up and go. And um, and I knew deep inside I loved my wife from the minute I met her, but I didn't feel love because of my acting out. Well, that's changed. You know, I don't have that urge to leave my children anymore. I feel love towards my wife. Um, um, and that's because of the program. You know, it's those are just a couple things that... Um, that God's given me and this program's given me that I didn't have before, you know. And I have a grandfather who did leave the, who did leave. He became an alcoholic and just took off. So I, I could have, I mean, I'm just, I'm just that close to doing the same thing. So, so thanks for letting me share. And, um, we'd like to do, Vaughn and I now, just open it up and we'll put a chair here. And if anybody would like to come up and share their experience with step two and, um, what came to believe means to you guys. Hey everyone, I'm Tomas and I'm a sexaholic. Hi Tomas. I appreciate you guys uh, participating in this panel. Um, what's compelled me to come up here so quickly is that uh, while I appreciate the sharing that's occurred so far, I, I came to this room hoping to hear some more about agnosticism and uh, and I'm feeling a little disappointed so I thought that I'd come and share my experience with uh, and my struggles with um, uh, turning a will over to God and what God means to me. Um, I grew up. Uh, well, one of the things I struggle with in the program is that the recovery is so dependent on turning the will over to God, 
and I've led an entire life where God um, didn't have any place, didn't have any meaning, uh, wasn't even a concept that was talked about in my family. Um, my uh, I have two sort of uh, two parents. Um, my father's ancestors were uh, Jewish, but uh, his parents did not practice the faith. He was not raised the faith. Um, my mother's ancestors were uh, Irish Protestants, and uh, likewise, she did not uh, was not raised uh, practicing that religion. Um, and in their union, and uh, they, I'm one of five children. Uh, we were raised where um, the concept of church and God uh, just wasn't there. It wasn't uh, spoken about. So um, this presents a real problem for me because I'm a sexaholic and uh, I'm in a program that says that I can uh, recover only when I'm willing to turn my uh, turn my will over to the care of God and uh, have him show me the way. Um, and how do I do that when I don't have any concept whatsoever of God? What... Uh, What I've what I've found instead is that uh, even though I'm 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 not religious, um, I'm finding that I have a tremendous amount of spirituality. And spirituality and religion are very very different things. Um, and uh, my parents, uh, God bless them, uh, you know I, I went through a period where I thought I grew up in the Brady Bunch and I had a perfect family, and now through being in the program and therapy, I realized that. Uh, um, there was a lot of dysfunction in my family, um, though my parents did the best they could. Looking back now, I see that they too had a lot of spirituality. You know, my father had a lot of faith in uh, what could be. Um, he uh, had a lot of faith. Uh, he 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 came to realize that uh, the reason that he was on this earth was to be a father to five children. And uh, my mother would tell me stories about how he'd come in to our rooms when we were sleeping and just be full of this love for his children and uh, realize that's what he was on earth for. Um, it wasn't a church that taught him that. It's something else that he grabbed and reached for inside himself. Um, and uh, I credit my spirituality, my faith that I can have a life different than the miserable life that I was heading down um, to, to saving me. Uh, I had... Um, uh, about a year and a half ago, I had a marriage, uh, and I have two young daughters. Um, just on the verge of being over, and I was going to lose these children that are very precious to me. And um, and the only way to to have any hope of saving that was to um, to deal with my addiction, deal with my problem. Um, and uh, I didn't know how I was going to do that. And the first thing uh, that sort of got, the first hurdle that I crossed was just saying, you know what, um, I'm just going to try to do it and we'll see what happens. And that act of saying, I'm going to see what happens, is a tremendous leap of faith. And, um, you know, it's that faith that uh, keeps me sober every single day. You know, every single day I have a decision that I'm faced with where uh, I can decide to do a behavior that is destructive, or I can do a behavior that's healthy. And um, as each day goes by, I'm I'm more apt to choose the behavior that's healthy. Uh, and, uh, and the further I get into my recovery and my sobriety, um, the easier it becomes for me to make that choice to do a behavior that's healthy and productive. Um, what's causing me to do that? I have no idea. Uh, so um, the program can work for uh, agnostics. The book, uh, the big book, says that it can. Um, and uh, I do see a lot of fellows spending a lot of time trying to um, define what God is and asking their sponsors, "What is God? What does He look like? What's it supposed to feel like?" Um, and I've had those questions too, but now I'm I'm more like, you know, I don't really care. I don't. That, that's not important. Um, you know, what's important for me is to uh, to do right now, this hour, this day, uh, the thing that I need to do, and um, find a way to uh, stop from doing those things that I want to do that I shouldn't be doing. Um, 
the other thing I want to say is that I, I can see for myself and I can imagine for a lot of people coming into the program, it's got to be really, really hard um, when you hear people with long-term sobriety uh, talk so much about the God and how God operates in their life and how much how God let them do this and God let them do that and you know at that moment God touched them on the shoulder or you know it's got to be really hard um, if you don't have that same connection with some person uh, some God as the Catholic Church might define him or the Protestant Church or Christianity or Judaism um, but I'm here to tell you there's a way uh, that you can work this program um, without having to have all those answers. Thanks for letting me share. Hi, I'm Howard. I'm a sex addict, and I'm an agnostic also. Um, I come from a from a uh, pretty scientific background. My father was uh, heavily driven by science and empiricism, and uh, I, although pretty emotional person, I think uh, throughout most of my life, uh, the guiding force has been uh, prove it to me. If it can't be proven, it doesn't exist. And I found through uh, three years of um, of participating in Sexaholics Anonymous that uh, those the the basic principles of SA and and my scientific background are not necessarily incompatible. Um, in in the twelve and twelve, uh, I don't remember which chapter it was. Um, talks about uh, being willing to to do uh, to do an experiment with uh, spirituality. And um, my sponsor has also presented uh, the program to me in, in this light. Uh, simply stated, he he said, uh, "Why don't you try just going through the motions of the program and see if there's a difference before and after?" And I can tell you that that uh, as stubborn as I am, and as as much as I want to drag my feet, and as resentful as I I can get when uh, when pushed to do that kind of thing, uh, it works. It does work. I I can see a difference when. Uh, I do step 11 every night before I go to bed compared to when I don't do it. Um, I can see a difference in my life when uh, when I do fourth and fifth step type work with people. Um, if I keep my inside separate from the rest of the world, uh, I, I'm a goner. I, I, I can't have a minute of sobriety. If I uh, bring the inside out and I'm willing to surrender it, uh, my life is better. To let you know um, how out of control my life was before I came to the program, uh, I can give you lots of examples, but probably the last big shock to my system was uh, I had a six-month-old daughter. I still, I still have my daughter. Um, I was married at the time, uh, subsequently uh, been, become separated. Uh, we were at the store, uh, about ready to go. My wife says, can you go back and get some apples? So I crossed over three aisles and there, scooping up some uh, granola, was a prostitute that I, I saw on a pretty regular basis. Her back was to me. I didn't. Uh, she didn't see me. But um, you now I quick, quickly grabbed the apples and told my wife, "You know, we got to get out of here." She looked at me kind of funny, didn't ask any questions, and we got out of there uh, unseen. But um, that duplicity, that that double life that I was leading back then, it's gone, um, and. Believe me, I, I I didn't like that I didn't like that part of my life. Uh, it was living hell. Uh, I was perpetually anxious, uh, fearing discovery, 
unable to fully concentrate on anything I was doing. Uh, my life was divided and uh, incomplete. And um, since since I've walked through the doors here, you know, I've had a lot of sadness, a lot of pain, but I don't have that. Uh, I don't have that agitation, that constant agitation in my life anymore. Um, and I know that I didn't get rid of that myself. Um, I found for me that, that, uh, you know, I can't even really come to call it God, but there is something outside of me that has taken away that, uh, that agitation in my life. It's restored me to a point where I can uh, communicate with other people, where I'm not afraid to look people in the eye and, and talk to people and, and share, share my insides with other people. Um, there's something that has, there's some power outside of me that has, uh, given me joy in doing things for other people. Never happened before. And, uh, there is something outside of myself that's given me a home. Uh, no matter how resentful or uh, no matter how much I'm pushed sometimes to, to go to the essay, you know, my weekly essay meetings, I feel like I've found a home that I never had before. Um, and I certainly didn't create that home. Something outside of me created it. I think for me, uh, you know, in summary, the... The less definition I put to what my higher power is, the better. Um, the more I just follow the steps and let let that higher power enter my life, the better. And um, you know, the scientist in me says, you know, I, I think it's pretty much proven. My life was was uh, a shambles before, and even through just going through the motions of of getting on my knees and praying at night uh, to something I don't even know if it exists or not, uh, my life's improved, so there must be something there. And even if there isn't, uh, it, it doesn't really matter. I'm, my life is improved uh, by following the principles of the program, which include, you know, at least a willingness to believe that, that there's a higher power that can restore me to sanity. Thanks. Hi, I'm Eric, and I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. Hi, Eric. And I've been, I've been ambivalent about God and religion all my life. I was raised that way. My uh, parents, uh, my parents were kind of Protestant, and sporadically took me to various churches—Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian churches. And yet, at the same time, I got the message real strong from my parents to be self-reliant. To, uh, to go out in the world and do what I needed to do and make sure that I pushed and got it done. I was, uh, I was a Navy pilot for some years, and uh, there's not much more in the world that is more self-reliant than flying a high-performance airplane because uh, everything you do is in your hands, and you completely rely on yourself. And any pilot who ever believes that he might not be in control, needs to get out of the airplane right then because, uh, because that's when you lose control. Uh, if you've ever read the book, The Right Stuff, it's a, uh, it's a pee-in to that kind of existence. And yet it also points out the, the problem in that kind of existence is that you never know, the concept of the right stuff is that you never know who has the right stuff until they prove that they don't have it by crashing or having an accident or a mistake somewhere, then you know that they didn't have the right step, and so you never, you're always on that edge, never knowing whether you've got it or not. You just think you've got it until you prove you don't. I went through 40 years of acting out with fantasy and masturbation, and during all of that time, I was up and down and up and down about this God thing, and I was even baptized one time, and then I had a fallout with a church, and I, I went through a long period where uh, scientist mentality, I'm in charge of my life, and, uh, and that Christian stuff is all contradictions anyway. Uh, find your life to lose, or lose your life to find it, give to receive. I mean, these are silly things, these contradictions, these, 
these paradoxes of spirituality just made no sense to me at all. And it was during that time in my life that I really let go, that I, uh, I had no purpose other than where I was right now. And if I have no purpose, why, why does it matter for me to stay with my wife after 28 years and the kids were gone? If I'm not getting fulfilled there, if I'm not getting what I want, why should I stay with her? Why shouldn't I go out and have a good time? And, oh, I met people through the Internet who were interested in the same sort of exotic, sadomasochistic stuff I was. And it just completely took me away. And I spent four years destroying my life and my career. Avidly, the white book and recovery continues, the essay literature, and uh, and it really helped me. And uh, and I stopped masturbating, and I, I couldn't stop the fantasies during that time, but I stopped masturbating. Physically, I was sober for three and a half months and went to the Nashville conference last year, and that was the first time that I had a chance to get hold of the AA books. And can I borrow your sure. big book here? And, and there was... As I was reading the white book and recovery continues, I always found something kind of missing in them because they, the seven of the 12 steps talk about God. And yet the entire book just kind of talks about sexuality and sex addiction and, and how do you deal with that. And there's, just, there's a few words about spirituality and God in the white book, but, but it was kind of missing there. And, and there was something just not clicking for me. And then I picked up the big book and avidly started reading it a year ago. This was after three and a half months of sobriety, and I came to page 25. And I turn to this frequently these days. Page 25 says, there is a solution. The great fact is just this, and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. And, uh, and I read those words and it just suddenly clicked on me what the 12 steps were about. That's what it's for. That's what the 12 steps are for. And uh, and I, I found God again. And what I find now, a year later, is that the times when I'm having a hard time are the times when I'm not connected with God, when I'm not doing my morning meditation, when I'm not doing my step 10 uh, review of the day at the end of every day. Those are the days when I let that slip, when I let that connection go. Those are the days that I start to fall aside. And I have opened my mind to beliefs that I never believed in before. I, I'm living in a place now in Pensacola where this is part of the Bible Belt. They have the longest standing revival in history going on there still after eight years of continuous revival. People stand on the street and wave Bibles at you as you go by. And, and I, I just I can't believe that kind of stuff. I can't buy into it. And yet I'm listening to things that just absolutely blow my mind, that are not part of my life. People who talk about miracles, true miracles that they talk about and they've seen in their lives. And uh, all those paradoxes, I still don't understand how they work. I have no idea how they work, but what I've found is that they do. And so I've come to believe. And it's the heart of my program. Thanks. Thanks, sir. I'm Ben. I'm a sex addict. Hi, Ben. And I'm also an atheist and a proud atheist. Um, I have many friends in SA and I respect them. And I try to respect their beliefs, but I do not feel that same respect in return. I've been an atheist for 30 years, and I expect in 30 years I will still be an atheist. I believe that my beliefs are as strong and as significant to me 
as the beliefs of anybody who believes in God. But when I talk about my atheism, generally it is treated with a lack of respect, as if it is a phase that I'm going through, and that all I have to do is be cured of it, and then everything will be fine. I don't believe this, and I don't know really what to do about it. I do keep coming to meetings, but I find myself stopped at several different places because of my atheism and because of what I see as a lack of respect for it. Thank you. The God bit. Anyway, uh, I've been sober since September the 24th of 89, and I was a chronic masturbator and sexaholic. I started at seven years old, so I was uh, oh, 54, 53 years. Uh, sex, I mean, a uh, lust addict, the kid. You know, I had sex with my cousin, and she led me into it. And after that, I, I lived for that. You know, nothing else matters. I started masturbating when I was 16. And uh, <clears throat> I did the old treatment. I got married to a girl and had eight kids and three of them died, the whole kit. And uh, God was in there somewhere all these years. But just like you said, uh, I was raised in a very staunch Catholic environment. And uh, I was very religious. As a matter of fact, I would lost them to the confession on Saturday morning and the communion on Sunday for all my life. So I did the whole thing. But it was simply cells in me that wasn't me, you know. Uh, the reason I say that is, uh, I heard some nice stuff this morning, that God bit, as far as I'm concerned, is not... Uh, the religion for me is nothing but a structure. It's a scaffold. You know? it's, it's things are like a microphone. That's not... There's a voice going through there, but that's just a microphone. Same as that plane or whatever. And uh, something, something deeper and... Uh, uh, it's very sacred an individual God, you know. That's why it's so hard to share. It's just as, as intimate as a, as a sexual behavior, you know. That's a bedroom scene or a soul scene. And the way... Uh, <clears throat> to this day, I don't know. I don't know God that well. The only thing I know is that I have some experiences. And I look at my sobriety. I was 60 years old and I got into walking to that essay room on Halloween night. Something happened there. It's like I, I left my Halloween suit there. My whole life was a Halloween suit, you know, like a fake. And I heard somebody talk. And I heard somebody talk like me, so I came out of that suit and I said, "Well, I want to talk to you." Well, I couldn't talk for four months because I don't want to just cry. Because I mean, finally somebody was there to hear me. Uh, <clears throat> I've taken lots of therapy and courses for 22 years, you know, analysis of blue, you know, blue in the face. Anyway. And religious courses and that kind of stuff. But uh, to me, the God bit is a spiritual thing. It's more, there's no words for it. It's, it's, a, it's a sense of knowing somewhere where there's no word. It's a wordless state. And they say the kingdom of God, the God's personal, and all that, that's okay. But for me, the kingdom, as we say it, is, that's a state. It's a state of being. I don't know if it's a place. It doesn't matter. There's a state of well-being for me. And I learned to trust in that place, you know. It's called intuition. And I know a gut feeling before I can think. Now that's where God comes in as far as I'm concerned. That's step 11. It says, I intuitively know what to do. And don't ask me to explain intuition because we live in a world here where they say they want you to put words on something that God is. You can't. I just have a gut feeling. I know it's yes or no and I have to trust that. And if I trust that and follow that, Every time, everything pans out. I screw it up when I bring my own ideas, my own upbringing. Every time. Every time. I can't believe it, you know. And I come to say that over the years, you know. It took a long time to get there. It's a progressive thing. So the steps are all right. They're all good. They're a method. But they can stick up here. I have to watch, you know. <laughs> I have to transcend everything all the time. I don't know why I'm sitting here today. I wasn't going to talk. I says, I'm in there all telling me the real thing. So why should I go in there and talk about something inside of me? Tell me, get up there and swear. Well, how can I stay sober and keep my God if I don't give him back? 
you know, like I share it back. And I find today, as I get older and say to myself, what am I doing in essays? I've been sober just about 12 years and a couple of months, 11 years or something to the day. I'm sober now, you know, I don't need that, you know. I don't want to go. But if I don't go back there and show that, I've got all kinds of things in my life. And I said to myself, God is represented for me to my to the Father, to the to the to the to the reality of the human. And if I didn't have a good relationship with my dad, which I didn't, God's been vague from little all the time. That's really real. Today, what I find for me is to be is to be an integrated man, a good man, and be able to be a male, and and to be able to take become autonomous and become standing. Amidst a bunch of men. If my purpose for existing today me is to be a man. You know, and that's how it is, you know. And I become a man, I'm still there in a men's group or anything like that. A man is a man that stands up. And sex for me has become an option. By the grace of God, you see. That's great. I didn't have that before. It's become an option. Crap, I'm ventilating here. I'm, I don't know what's going on. Lots of stuff. You see, I'm, I'm allowing myself to live my feelings in the, over the years instead of repressing or rationalizing. Two different things, you see. And uh, I'm going to share shortly. I was sober for 10 years and 10 months. Total uh, celibate, you know, single and everything. And I lost my family, all the story behind his years. Then I met this nice lady at church. I went to church and I prayed to God one day. I said, you know, I'm tired of being alone. Send me a nice woman. And I said, I want a good looking one. <laughs> I want the one that will love me. And one that said that has a good shape. I don't want some some old lady that because I'm seventy. By gosh, you give me a nice one. <laughs> Fifty-one years old boy. She looks pretty. She's got a good shape and everything is like that. And I asked him that for that reason. I says I have a need there. I have a need for me, but I have to need to experience a relationship. I can still celebrate, you know, very well in general monastery. Everything I didn't hide there for the rest of my life. But no, I have to be more than that. After entering into relationships with something, to know by experience what is God doing in my life. But I have to be human. I can read the Bible. I read it three times. It didn't do much for me. It did all right, but you know. The real things that living experience from. And it really worked, you know. And the reason I'm saying that, when that girl come along there, she's well built, you know, and everything. She's got everything that a sexaholic would look for. But you know, our connection is from God, you know, and that's quite a thing to, to experience. It's pretty hard to put words on that. We know that both God, she's not too religious or anything like that. She's just a good friend, you know, and, and that gave me a chance to be able to relate with another human being soaked in the presence of God, you know, and it's, and it's, it's unreal how God, I think it's God, how that state of presence can keep me sober in a situation. It, it's, it's exceptional. Uh, it's really a grace and uh, I don't know if we're going to get married or anything like that. It doesn't matter anyway. But it was a real good test at this time in life. I never realized that I could get a woman 20 years younger than me to be so intimate and so close, you know, and yet stay sober. And I said, oh, I guess there's a God there now. It's a God, you know, and it's quite something. So for me, the God experience is a, a thought experience. And I like when somebody said this, says, fake it till you make it, but that's very real. <laughs> And that's how it worked for me. I faked it. Now listen, I look back and because I've been sober one year, nine months, I can't believe it. The third year chip, I thought, there must be some deal there. Because I can't stay sober for 60 years or 47 years, you know. Years and years of habit, you know. You'd think you would die without sex. And by gosh, it's gone. And after a while for me, uh, it become like... All the sex stuff and crap I lived, you know, I did everything, cross genders, you know, animals, everything, kids. You know, when you're a sex addict, I wasn't, I tried, I tried all, why not? Uh, <clears throat> it's like somebody else lived it. Somewhere inside there was another man, it was me, you know, the real me was there. And he wasn't alive, he was like a little kid or something, that dwarf, and he had to come out and survive. And you know that I've been nurturing that part and growing, and you know something, there's the most beautiful person on earth is that little me me. You know, it's there. It was never called forth. It's reason stop after this. This is the mother gives life and the father calls it forth. And if that wasn't done, go limping, stay dwarfed in the life-giving aspect. I stay a little boy and then I've matured my sexuality. 
I'm going to stop talking too much. I got an audience here. It sure was good. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, my name is Matthew. I'm a sexaholic. Uh, and I sounds uh, like I'm similar to many people here. I've struggled with my own atheism or being agnostic uh, and somehow blending it into this program. When I first uh, heard about SA, I was at uh, a job and I heard something on a radio and I knew you know, that I was having problems. I had all the financial problems, prostitution, massage parlors, pornography, all, all the problems. And I thought, well, okay, I'll try to go to one of these meetings. I found out about one. I went to it and uh, I heard, you know, God mentions, I think someone said seven times out of, you know, 12 steps, whatever it was. And I thought, what the hell am I doing here? I, I don't believe in God. I, I this is the wrong place for me. So I stayed, I think, three or four meetings, and I thought, okay, I, I've got the gist of it. I'll take off, and I'll handle this on my own. I, I am my own God. Um, and sure enough, uh, you know, problems escalated, and three years later, I was back. Um, my marriage, uh, I'd been married only about uh, four months when my wife discovered some Internet uh, affair that was going on, and uh, that's not quite the honeymoon she was looking forward to. And in the past, she had signed my acting out, and uh, we discussed things about uh, phone sex, and I had lied away on it. And uh, uh, what I did was the fake it till you make it. I uh, just went to the meetings and told uh, a few of the old-timers had told me, well, listen, just go to the meetings, make the meetings, and essay your higher power. Uh, you don't have to define it. You don't have to do anything. Just you're going to have to come to some realization at some point that you can't do it all. And uh, whenever I started uh, believing through my self-reliance, which was extremely helpful for me in the past, that it would work again for me, I would get in trouble. And uh, I had a realization uh, that came to me after probably three or four years of going to SA, and I would slip all the time, and uh, I wasn't going after it wholeheartedly, but... I had a realization where I had a meeting that I liked, I had a sponsor that I liked, I had a, a, a room that I liked the meeting at, it had a fireplace, and you know we could eat and drink food there, and it wasn't the sterile hospital environment. And uh, I realized one day when I was in a circle, you know, saying a prayer, holding other men's hand, I said, I can't believe this. What am I doing here? I, I was the person that, uh, you know, I, I did have somewhat of a religious upbringing, but I would always believe, oh, they're these people are just using this as a crutch. Uh, there, there is no God. You know, they, and then I would see people, their two-faced comments after they would leave church, they would say something about somebody else. And it's just, uh, you know, they didn't equate. And, uh, but to have myself sitting in a circle, holding hands, hands with other men, telling them, oh, uh, you know, I masturbated, I, you know, I broke this vow, I did whatever. And to hear other people tell me that, I still can't define a higher power. I float around trying to figure it out, but I realize whether it's a chemical reaction, something, but there's some formula, there's some substance, there's some entity besides myself that uh, is uh, more in control of my life than I am. I'm not going to say it's in definite control of my life, but I know it has much more to do with my life than uh, I can ever guess. And so... I just admit that to myself, and it gives me a lot of strength to do that. Uh, I will probably be agnostic or atheist for the rest of my life, and uh, I, I have had some resentments where people come up after meetings going, oh, well, you should try this, or you should try that. And My thought is, well, I'm going to try these 12 steps, and I, I, I thank you for your suggestions. And uh, in the past, I, I would feel you know, very angry about it, and my thought is, well, if I'm going to believe that there's something else out there, why not just listen to this person speak? You know, bite my tongue, listen to them speak, and then I can make my decision later. And so for me, it's just being open-minded. And uh, um, thank you. Thanks, Matt. Does anybody else want to come up before we... I guess everybody's getting ready for lunch, so uh, thank you for everybody sharing. I sure appreciated everything I had to share. 
you had to share. Um, nothing like a small meeting. I always like a small, intimate meeting. So, um, why don't we uh, finish off with a circle? And uh, why don't we do the uh, third step prayer, probably. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.